Hello and welcome to the IOTA Unum podcasts from the Latin Mass Society. In the company of some great friends of tradition from around the world, we will be drilling into some of the fundamental issues affecting us today in the church and the world. Hello, it's me, Joseph Shaw, with the Latin Mass Society's IOTA Unum podcast series. And today I am joined by Kevin Simmons, who's a writer and researcher in the um, Catholic world, who's worked on particularly on private revelation. He's written a book about the Protestant Michael and the famous vision of Pope Leo XIII, which led to the composition of that prayer, which is what we pray at the end of mass, at the traditional mass. And he's written a book about the third secret of Fatima as well. And we're going to talk about conspiracies and conspiracy theories. So um, welcome, Kevin. Thank you for having me, Dr. Shaw. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Kevin, could you say something about your, your motivation in getting involved in this, this swamp-like area of research? Swamp is a very fitting word. <laughs> um, well, uh, I'm a convert. I became Catholic in 1997, so it's close to 24 years now. And as I was coming into the church, I was introduced to a whole new world that was very interesting to me. Um, some of it being things along the lines of private revelation, like apparitions and visions and things of that nature. But also some of the, you know, the conspiracy, shall we say. And they were always of interest to me. But I was a high school kid at the time. I was 14, 15, give or take, at the time. I'm now almost 40. And um, I didn't have much means to be able to look anything up or research it. And then after, after high school, I went to college and obtained my bachelor's and master's degrees in theology from Franciscan University of Steubenville with a uh, kind of like a modest background in the classical languages. But I always had this, this uh, curiosity or a certain inquisitiveness about me. And it's like, well, I, I want to get to the bottom of this. So after I graduated, um, I started my career and began, I had already done writing in college, but after college, it continued. And in 2008, I decided to write a book on private revelation, a Q&A book called Refractions of Light. And uh, as that was nearing its development in May of, 20, May of 2012, I was in a conversation with some people in a car in South Carolina. <laughs> and um, this, uh, the gentleman, one of the gentlemen said something that, about the St. Michael prayer and Leo's vision that I knew was false. And I said, I've got to, I, I want to get to the heart of this. What, what is this all about? And from that experience, I researched what eventually came to be my book, Pope Leo XIII and the Prayer to St. Michael. That was published in June, no, excuse me, uh, October or November of 2015. And the second edition came out in August of 2019, I think, 2018, 2019, uh, 2018, that's right, 2018. Um, and I, I just said, I just want to get to the bottom of this. Did Leo really have a vision? Was this a hundred years of this extended reign of the devil's control? You know, I just I just want to get to the bottom of it. It was just this this burning thing within me. Um, this is a this, yeah. This is a book which I I heartily recommend to to listeners. I mean, it, I find it fascinating myself because I mean I I've heard this story all my life growing up as a Catholic conservative Catholics in particular. I like to repeat this story to to oh yes, and this explains everything and. And I thought, well, I haven't, this isn't a story that you actually would read in an official history. Mm -hmm. And yet, there does seem to be slightly more to it than just a complete urban myth. And you look into the sources insofar as one can as a kind of ordinary person, and it turns out that it is repeated by people who are quite respectable, and yet not that close to the source, you know, historically. So you find cardinals and, and, and stuff repeating this story um, and you kind of hit a dead end very quickly as an ordinary person. You think, well, it's not totally, you know, it, it hasn't been made up, you know, very recently. 
Um, and yet it's not there in the kind of, you know, official historical record. So what can we make of this? And should we take it seriously? Should we be repeating this story to, to people? Should we be, you know, thinking about the story and, and making use of it in our own thinking? Um, so Kevin has done, I think, an extraordinary service to the church in pinning it down insofar as anything can be pinned down historically, because always the with, with historical research, there's always, you know, a, a, a final kind of judgment which has to be made. But um, well, Kevin, what what is the kind of the, the grain of truth in in the in the in this funny story? With Leo's vision. Um, well, again, my, my goal was to track down the sources. Where did this internet? Well, for far as anybody knew, it was an internet rumor, you know. Where did this rumor begin? Is it really true? Uh, if so, um, what are the sources? Is this reliable? Um, in the end, uh, most of the book is, of, is walking through uh, the available evidence, that at least that is available and what I was able to obtain, I should say, kind of put both of those there. And uh, so it reads like a detective novel, almost like a whodunit. Not quite as good as Sherlock Holmes, though. <laughs> Um, and then the last chapter puts it all together. So once we know what actually happened versus what has been popularized, now we can take what we do know and say, what can we say about it? And that forms the last big chapter of the book before the conclusion. So what we know is Leo had a vision. It, it happened sometime between 1884 in 1886, so January of 80, 1884 to about roughly August-ish, depending upon how you look at the evidence, uh, of 1886. He had a vision. We know very little of what the vision was. We know that it involved demons. Um, uh, the Italian term is adenzavano, and it's, it's used in cooking, and it means thickening. So the demons were congregating upon the... the um, the the damage the Chita Eterna, the, the, the holy city of Rome. And so they're coming, gathering more and more. Uh, that's all we know, as far as what the witnesses have said. My book also says, okay, well, there's there's the evidence, and then there's like the meta-evidence. There's the stuff that's there's the vision itself, and then there's the stuff that surrounds it. So I, I took not only what we know what happened but also the evidence surrounding it. So for instance, um, why did Leo, it's one thing for Leo to have a vision. Why did he think to include a prayer to the archangel at the end of the Leonine prayers? Yeah. That says something. So when you look at what, so then so you say, well, okay, well, what was the purpose of the Leonine prayers? Well, it had everything to do with the attack on the papal state and loss of the papal states historically. That's, that was the purpose of these prayers. Um, and then, of course, after the Lateran Treaty was signed in 1929, uh, the fate of those prayers was, it was being debated at, at, within the Congregation of, of Rights at the time. And there was a, a, an elderly cardinal who stood up and said, in so many words, we can't get rid of it because Leo had a vision and it involved Freemasons, so we need to keep these prayers in. And ultimately, Pope Pius XI of blessed memory uh, decided to keep them in, but change the intention for Russia. Yeah. Which then ties into Fatima, you see. So we get these interesting connections. Very interesting. Know? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And for the sake of, of readers, it, it may be of interest that <clears throat> Kevin and I first um, came into contact with each other. When I was writing about the Leonine prayers for the Federation, the Univoce Federation, um, in a position paper, uh, it seems like a long, a long time ago now, but which has now finally found its way into as a chapter of the book, uh, The Case for the Liturgical Restoration, of which I'm the editor, which you can buy from Angelica Press. Um, and um, Kevin was very, very kindly let me see his um, not at that time yet published research um on that um and it's um 
it's a it's a very interesting it's a very interesting subject the, the the prayers that we say today are still said for the intention which was set by Pius XI in i think 1929 um and he said it's for the um the, the religious freedom in 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 russia um and not exactly for the conversion of russia um although the two things obviously closely connected um, and, but they were first instituted, not with the President Michael, but with other prayers, um, before the, the fall of the Papal States by Pius IX. Um, for the, and the intention was for the preservation of the Papal States, for the defence of the Papal States. So they actually went before, from before Leo XIII. However, um, having written that book about, about Leo XIII and the President Michael, um, you have now moved on to other other issues. Um, you've also written a book about the um, the third secret of Fatima. I have, yes. Um, and again, I mean, there's a huge amount of smoke here. Um, and is there a flame at, at the bottom of it? So, I mean, this is this is not something which exercises everyone in the church, I'm glad to say, um, but for some people, this is a massive, massive issue, the whole issue of the 13th Fatima, to such an extent that there's, I mean, not a theological system or even a system in terms of the acceptance of authority, but there's a kind of what I would call an epistemic system. So people who think that there's a, you know, the, the what's happened with Fatima is, 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 is you know, or, there is one interpretation of it, as opposed to, you know, everyone else. Um, it's 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 hard to have a conversation between those those two people. But again, you've managed to cut through to what can be established with a very high degree of certainty, um, which clears away not every mystery and, and strange thing, but a huge amount of unclarity. Um, I mean, in a nutshell. Um, again, because we want to move on, we want to move on beyond this as well. But in a nutshell, what 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 can you tell listeners about about this business? Is the Vatican sitting on some unpublished text? Well, the answer is technically no, it isn't. But there's a lot of work that goes into it, and of course, as I'm sure you you understand. Uh, a simple yes or a no is hardly ever sufficient, you know, because there's always more surrounding it. But um, I, I want to say from the outset that uh, as I move forward and I continue to uh, research and, and reflect upon things, I'm actually becoming more and more of the conclusion that these debates over the so-called fourth secret of Fatima are, are actually demonic. I'm going to be very bold. I'm going to say they're very demonic because it's distracting from what is really going on. What is really going on is we have yet to really fully understand the third part of the secret of Fatima. And all of these debates over Rome allegedly hiding the fourth secret text or whatever, you know, uh, the two text theory and other, it, it's, it's distracting us. It's actually hurting the cause. And I say that because the evidence is overwhelming. There is... Uh, we now know that the Virgin Mary appeared to Sister Lucia in early January of 1944, and Our Lady gave her the permission to write down the third, secret, the third part of the secret. But Our Lady gave Sister Lucia a caveat. She said to her, uh, but not that which is given to you to understand of its meaning. The Portuguese word for meaning is significado. So there was a meaning that was given at some point in time, we don't know when, to Sister Lucia, the visionary, but uh, it, heaven didn't want it known for whatever reason. So once this became public knowledge in October of 2013, with the publication of a biography of Sister Lucia, that changed all of this, and it added a lot of clarity to that topic. And so the obvious question is, if the Virgin Mary gave an, a, a mandate to Sister Lucia not to write down the meaning of the third part of the secret of Fatima, how is it that the Vatican could be sitting on a text that communicates from Sister Lucia the meaning of the third part of the secret of Fatima? 
it just you know it is it, it doesn't work logically it doesn't go together so Fatima interested Fatima scholars and myriologists and, and I know some of them I, I talked to them that's just not where we're at right now in these discussions is the is this fourth secret stuff we are moving forward with the historical evidence and saying well that pool is ever widening what can we say about the third, the inter- church's interpretation of the third part of Secret Fatima. Did she get it right? Did she get it wrong? The, the rest of the stuff is just is, is a distraction. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 a that's a very helpful way of of, of expressing it. I think. I mean, I, I, I myself, I've read some stuff about the, the from a from a you know the the, the perspective of, of people saying that there's been such shenanigans in the, in the Vatican and, and stuff. And it 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 well. This is something which I, I myself, in a very very small way, I've I've experienced in a, in a in a different context. If people people say to me, um, "Oh no, there's terrible things happening in the church," and you know, here's a theory, and here's another theory, and here's another thing. And I think um, I'm like, I do have a little bit of an insight into into what's happening in the church um, because you know I hear anecdotes and I, I hear personal testimonies of, of people, which I can't pass on. Um, and I, I, of course, I've read a lot of stuff, um, which is probably too boring for most people to read, but is nevertheless informative, builds up a picture. And I, I often feel, talking to ordinary Catholics who are very, very worried, I feel on the one hand, things are actually even worse than you realise. But on the other hand, the way things are bad is not quite what you're, what you think. It's not that they're wrong to be worried. They are. They're right to be worried. Yeah. It's not that there's a kind of failure of faith or, oh, they should just, you know, be quiet and pay, pay in the bray. You know, it's not that. That's not the problem. It's the problem is that they, they perfectly naturally, because they don't have the kind of privileged information or the kind of information from scholarly research or anything like that. perfectly naturally they've kind of latched on to some obvious suggestive things and things which have been put into the public domain by popular writers which are just leading them in the wrong direction um and i mean sometimes it doesn't matter very much but sometimes it's really problematic because they become convinced that um well they can't convince that, that that people are bad for reasons which are not helpful reasons to categorize people as being bad mm-hmm. um and it creates divisions um, within you know the traditionalist or conservative catholic kind of group um and as a the devil up, plays both sides exactly it doesn't matter if you if you say i'm a traditionalist or i'm a liberal it doesn't matter the devil will play both sides yeah yeah yes indeed so i i, I think that um it's it's there's something tragic about the Fatima debate, and it's it's and the message of Fatima is 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 important, and it's obviously it's supernatural, and that's something which actually unites Catholics. I think in an interesting degree. I'm not all Catholic. Some Catholics say, "Well, I'm just not interested in private revelation," which is which I suppose is a reasonable thing to say. But nevertheless, it's it's the Fatima. You know, we have a feast day for it. You know, we have pilgrimages there. You know, it's an official Catholic thing where we're told that it's worthy of belief, and it is. And actually, it, it's something which really speaks to people. The visionaries are very um, sympathetic characters. It's, 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 you know, these children. Um, and, you know, the message is also in its sort of simplicity and directness. It's very impressive. And, and this whole debate about the secret, it's like a kind of, it's, it's like a nightmare, which has kind of imposed itself on this. Yeah. If, um, if, 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 I, if I may real quick, I think there's something here that I think would be very, very good for, for everybody to, to hear uh, that goes to exactly with what you're saying. Speech, it's like to the point. Recently, I interviewed for Inside the Vatican, Father Charles Theodore Murr. Uh, he is the godson of Mother Pascalina Leonard, who was the right hand of Pope Pius XII for about 41 years before and during his pontificate. And he, he published, Father Murr published a book of, about, their, about their, um, their conversations in Rome. And he quotes, he, he attributes a beautiful quote to her that I think is very, very fitting. 
she was actually, the context is she was talking about an alleged apparition here in the United States and uh, some, some, paraf- some propaganda that got over to Rome and even she had seen it. She said, uh, these poor people, and they are not alone. They're trying to deal with a real inner conflict. They are struggling to comprehend the incomprehensible they are desperate to know what has happened to that one solid, unchanging, infallible church of theirs, the true faith inherited from their ancestors, learned at their mother's knees, loved and held near and dear unto death. Nothing is making sense to them any longer. Don't you see? They would be willing to accept the most bizarre hypothesis in the world. And then she names the hypothesis, which I won't say for reasons of you know, professional reasons. As insane as that sounds, they somehow could find that easier to believe than what they actually see happening with the church they so dearly love. And what has been happening is far from over. The devil isn't finished yet. No, not yet. The apostasy is only beginning. And that's on pages 119 through 120 of the book, yeah. The God Lover. It speaks right to it. You know, They're struggling to comprehend what's going on. And some people have turned to private revelation for those answers. Not unjustifiably so, because the purpose of prophecy is to give people hope. Yeah. It's just sometimes people take it too far. Yes, indeed. And and of course they 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 looking for a sensational explanation of a sensational phenomenon, which is the, the crisis in the church. Um it's 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 not unreasonable. Um it's not bad faith. And I think that, indeed, I go so far as to say that the, 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 the people who criticise them most harshly, the kind of institutional Catholics, um, I say, well, actually, it's your fault. <laughs> this is happening because you have failed to give them the leadership that they need. Um, so it's, it's, they are sheep without a shepherd. They haven't heard from the official sources of the church the explanations and the responses that Catholics need to hear to deal with the current, the modern crisis and the crisis within the church, but also the crisis outside the church. And they have to look some elsewhere. Um, and this is what, this is what they come up with. <laughs> uh, but let's, let's move on to the next, <laughs> next thing. Um, that one of the things that, that, that you've had to, to get involved in, um, you, you've been involved in debates about Fatima. I know you've you've, you've debated Chris Ferrara, haven't you? Um, I have, yeah. In, in person. But, the, the, but since then, um, the man of the hour has been uh, Taylor Marshall. Now, I don't want to start talking about Taylor Marshall and his book, but just to mention <laughs> that he's, he's raised these issues um, in his book, Infiltration. Um, and this is the old, old thing, even older perhaps than... than, than um, Fatima, um, is the question of communist infiltration and Masonic uh, attacks on the church. Um, And again, the question is, well, is this the realm of of complete lunacy? Is this something should we just refuse to talk about? Um, Is it a serious question at all? Hmm. I remember some years ago talking with a friend of mine and fellow researcher, Dr. Mary Nicholas. She's written book about Baladad, who I hope we'll be able to talk about a little bit later in some detail. Um, her, I was talking to her on the phone and she said, she said, Kevin, it's a dirty word, but we need to use it. Infiltration. I want to point out this was four years before Taylor Marshall's book came out. <laughs> I want to be very clear on that. Um, and I said, I said, you know, Dr. Nicholas, you're right. That, that this, you're 100%. Um, it, the evidence as I've been able to dig it up is, I mean, there's no question about it. There was to be infiltration of the, of the Catholic church as well as the Protestant churches, uh, ecclesial communities, I should say is the proper term, I guess. Um, and so there is this, there, infiltration is a thing. I take that as, as a historical given. How we discuss that topic, however, really is what is at debate right now. It is no secret. I'm not a fan of Dr. Taylor's, Dr. Taylor Marshall's book, Infiltration. I think it's very poorly written. 
Uh, I think in some cases it borderlines on plagiarism. I'm actually going to say that word plagiarism. Um, I think it borderlines. I'm not saying he has committed it. I'm saying I think he borderlines on it because he doesn't cite his sources. And a lot of people are under the impression that this is an original work, and it isn't. Um, there's a whole sordid story there. I don't want to want to give the whole thing, but I'll just keep it simple and say that uh, very poorly written. And I'm not the only one who's noticed this. Uh, others have written or podcasted about it. Incidentally, um, Kevin's, um, for the benefit of listeners, Kevin's was, um, um, book review of it appeared in Massive Ages a few issues ago. So you can actually see that online if you chase down the links. Yes. Uh, it appeared in May. So I think that was either the spring or the summer edition of the periodical, I believe, of 2020. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was happy to have that review published. Uh, I've been looking to have it published for a while. But anyway, um, so the, the, the book presents problems and he, Marshall is very, because he's very sloppy with the term, he's actually giving the subject of the infiltration of the church a bad name. But it's like a double-edged sword because whereas most people treated it, treat the, have treated the topic as like a taboo or a tinfoil hat subject because he has now brought some attention to it people are asking questions there's some interest now in it that didn't exist previously however the double sword being what it is the problem it's the same problem he's brought attention to it it's he has brought attention to it because he has sensationalized it and really made it a pejorative topic whereas people who take it more seriously or treat it with more reverence uh and the scholarly careful and care and precision that it requires uh, their job is a little harder now uh, in, in some respects and so uh, it, it's it's a the book is really a two-edged sword i'm more in favor of saying i think we should just throw it away uh because as one priest friend of mine put it the only thing that the book is good for is that it puts all the conspiracy theories in chronological order <laughs> you know and I think it was I think it was Dr. Taylor Marshall's um, written essay to be a member of the traditionalist club, if you will. Um, he had only come over to tradition, as it were, in beginning I think around August of 2016, and a since deleted tweet. Um, but I, and I view the book as being nothing more than his written essay, proving that he can just pare it back for talking points, but not really actually add any real scholarly contribution. So. Um, that those are some of the, those are just some of the difficulties of, of, of the book, but the topic itself, I I, I want to be also fair and, and 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 be conscious and give Dr. Taylor Marshall some honor and say I am glad that he's brought attention to it because it is a topic that needs to be discussed. I just don't care for the manner in which it is being discussed right now in the public forum, and there's something to be said for the manner of it. Not it's not just well we need to know. It's like no, there's the manner as well. You know the Vatican Council. Vatican II is very specific about this in Intermerifica. It's not just the information, it's how it's communicated. You know, morality affects both. And so as practicing Catholics, we should be aware of these things. Indeed, indeed. And, and well, the, the, the danger of digging it further and further, the whole issue, further and further into a, into a kind of rabbit hole of, of oh, only lunatics talk about this topic at all. Um, that's that's a you know that's a that's a that's a real problem. So <clears throat> we shouldn't be surprised if communists, Freemasons, um, and all sorts of other people want to stick their war in to the Catholic Church. Of course they do, um, and of course they always have. Um, and and before anyone thinks that I'm I'm going off on on, on a kind of lunatic tangent of my own. And we are now in the position of being able to look at records of communist importation into Central Europe, um, into the Catholic Church in Poland, for example. Um, and it's fascinating, although also quite bleak and, and depressing. Um, and we know we know that all sorts of proto Freemasonic groups or, 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 or uh, were involved in, in the French Revolution and things like that. We know because they say so. I mean, it's not. This is not a secret. This is not a kind of weird thing. Of course, there were conspiracies. Of course, there were people infiltrating. Of course, this is just how things work. This is just how life is. 
Um, but the the Catholic Church has always been the target of um, people who wanted to use the church's power and influence and money. In situations where it has power, influence, or money, any of the three will do, um, then uh, people will want to, people who are bad actors or people who are simply corrupt or people who want an easy life or people who have ideological uh, access to grind of one kind or another. Obviously, that's going to happen. It happened with Arianism. Um, it happened with... Um, in Soviet times, it's always going to happen. So we mustn't allow ourselves to, to think, oh, it, 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 it's silly to think that. Well, of course it's not silly to think that, but we do have to think about it in a serious way. In a, um, and as I, I reminded myself when I've written on these topics, as I, I've, I've said in, in one of my blog posts, it, it, it actually, one of the things that's happened to the church historically an awful lot is, is people getting involved because they want, they like the money. Um, and of course, you know, the Renaissance popes and all that sort of thing. And, and that's terrible. It's terrible, but it's, it's vastly less bad than people using the church to spread their ideas. If their ideas are anti-Catholic. Yes. And that is something which has been a huge thing in the church every time there's a heresy, of course. And specifically, we see it with modernism. Um, and we see this very clearly with, with Pius X's campaign against modernism in the early 20th century. These mm -hmm. are people who did not leave the church, but wanted to spread their ideas through the church, through the church's own institutions, through seminaries, for example. Um, you know, this is not you know, this is not lunacy, this is not kind of peculiar, because this is just the historical record. This is what they did. Um, and why shouldn't they? After all, they had their ideas, they thought they were right, they thought they were Catholic. Um, they disagreed with the Pope. Um, and they didn't want to leave institutions in which they had influence. Um, Pius X did his best to deal with them. Um, and, um, you know, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole library of books on the subject anyone can read. But communists and Freemasons obviously take that one step further. Um, so um, one thing that I know, Kevin, you've been researching recently is the question of Annibale Bugnini. Um, yes. That comes up in this book review we just mentioned. In fact, we, we managed to reveal something in the Mass of Ages, the Latin Mass Society magazine, which had not previously been in the public domain at all. So would you like to talk us through our um, every, every traditionist's best friend, Anipali Pugnini? <laughs> oh, my goodness, those words are here. <laughs> no, um... I'm pretty unabashed at this point, in my opinion, on Annabelle Bonini. Um, I don't know if I would ever say the words publicly, uh, but you know. But how I came across this was Taylor Marshall's book Infiltration had just come out. Um, it came out of a. It was supposed to be out. If I'm, I was talking to Michael De, Mike Del Monaco from Sophia Institute Press, the publisher of the book, and uh, he told me that it, it had come out about a week early. So because I and I remember ordering it. It came around the 22nd. It was supposed to come out like the 29th. Or or 30th of May, but um, so I got, I was looking through the Kindle edition first uh, here on this very phone, and then um, I got, I also ordered the hard copy. So I'm going through it, and I'm, I'm seeing this shoddy scholarship on Marshall's part, but I come across a reference. I don't remember the chapter off the top of my head, and unfortunately, the book is in the other room, but. And it was to a Father Brian Harrison talking to some, I think it was AD 2000 was the publication. And that was one of the places where Marshall actually had a footnote. And I said, oh, well, this is very interesting. I want to see what Father Harrison said here. So, of course, you know, Google Scholar. <laughs> um, uh, I'm being facetious there. But uh, I looked up on the Internet, and lo and behold, somebody had reprinted it. The article. Oh, it was a letter to the editor reprinted father's letter and i said oh my goodness and i've heard this name father brian harrison I, you know through connections with uh the fathom discussions and dr alice von hildebrand uh and i was like well i don't know father harrison but i'd like to talk to him so i contacted a friend of mine um 
and who I thought might know, might know him. Uh, this person is fairly well known in traditionalist circles, and so I said, "Well, do you know how to get a hold of Father Harrison?" And he said, "He's like, oh yeah, yeah. Well, what do you want to talk to him about?" I said, "I want to ask him." So he sent a, an email off and introduced us, and um, I talked to Father Harrison. But at first, he was like, "What are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about, Kevin." And I was like. It's right here in the book, and it's also online. It has your name on it. I don't know what else to tell you. So he looked it up, and uh, he was like, oh, yeah, yeah. He had forgotten all about it, and it wasn't in his curriculum vitae because he had forgotten. So, But he did confirm it, and then he, he went a little bit further than just to confirm it, actually. He said, well, I'm going to send you some more information here soon, I think he said. And within a couple of days or weeks, something like that, he sends me this decent-sized email with the story that was published uh, in a nutshell in Massive Ages, which was the party that Father Harrison was at, uh, wherein Michael Davies, uh, I don't know if you want the exclusive, I, I omitted it in the, in the main, in the, in the article, but uh, if you want an exclusive, I can give you the exclusive on this, but Father Harrison told me that uh, Michael Davies had one too many scotches in him, considerably loosened his tongue, I think is how Father Harrison would put it. And uh, this is no disrespect to the late, great Michael Davies, of course. This is just, you know, they're at a party. You know? um, and he revealed the name of the cardinal who brought the, if the, the, the famous briefcase to Paul VI and it caused somebody else at the party, I don't know who, I suspect, but I don't know who, uh, to get agitated because they're like, that's supposed to be like super secret. You weren't supposed to say that. Um, but Davies not only confirmed the story, but um, that, that, that the briefcase story had happened, but Father Harrison had said, uh, no, it, it is true because I also spoke with Dr. Eric uh, Seventhen, the founding president of, is, forgive me, it's Univoce International, I believe. For uh, well, yeah, well, the official that's it. Thank you. Uh, sometimes my brain, I get all these details in my head. Um, but Dr. Seventhem had mentioned it as well to Father Harrison. Um, and he, you know, and, and, and Seventhem's source was the priest who found the briefcase. So all this stuff is coming together. And then about a month later, a little over a month later, I'm at the airport in South Carolina, uh, or coming back from South Carolina, visiting my family, and I'm talking to uh, Father Murr, who I mentioned earlier. I was talking to him on the phone, and I was telling him about, about all that. And he, he, right off the blue, he said to me, he said, no, Kevin, it wasn't one cardinal. It was, it was a couple of them. And I said, that brought up a briefcase to Paul. And I said, Father, What? And he repeated himself. I said, Father, I have known you all this time, and you're just telling me this story now? And, he, and, he, and he's like, no, it's true, Kevin. He's, he's like, I know about this because um, Monsignore Marini and Archbishop Gagnon, he's like, we would talk about it at, 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 at Los Galpone. I was like, you're telling me this now? <laughs> so I have two independent people of one another telling me this story. And, of course, Father Murr, having worked with later Cardinal Gagnon, uh, you know, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is serious. So I worked on the story and I put things together and um, somebody had suggested to me to write an article for a journal. And that was uh, the original idea behind uh, the Taylor Marshall uh, review was to kind of lump it all in. Um, but uh, long story short, Massive Ages got it. So they got the exclusive uh, scoop on that story. So. Just to rewind the tape for the benefit of, of, of readers who, who, are, who are not fully versed in, 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 this, in these theories, the, 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 story, the story is, and this is, this is like a kind of, you know, the kind of urban myth, the kind of thing which is kind of mentioned in, in, on the internet, no one can quite see what the source is. And, well, the, the story has always been that um, Bugnini, at the end of his life, or towards the end of his life, he was disgraced and sent away from Rome um, and for being a Freemason because Paul VI had become convinced he was a Freemason. Um, and what we know, obviously, he was sent away from Rome. He became, he became the, an apostolic nuncio, which is a little bit odd because he hadn't been involved in the Vatican's diplomatic service before then, um, for Iran, of all places. 
Um, mm -hmm. And one of the one of the strange ironies of history, uh, he was he was the absolute nuncio in Iran when the revolution took place in 1979. Um, and um, apart from apart from that, um, he 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 filled in his his final years writing a history of the Catholic Church in Persia, <laughs> which is one of those just bizarre things. But what, what on earth was he doing? He certainly wasn't happy about it. And again, on on the record, as as, as um, Kevin shows. Um, we got all kinds of really very, very unhappy noises from Bergnini about how he's been ill-treated and misunderstood and there's been some sort of peculiar thing going on and there's even footnotes in his own works and, and, and things he's written in journals saying, saying, I can't understand it, something terrible has happened. Um, and the, the, the kind of the urban myth type story which, which purports to explain this goes like this, that Bergnini was in a meeting in the Vatican, some meeting room somewhere, and the meeting ended, they all left. And he left behind a suitcase, uh, a briefcase. <clears throat> and it didn't have his name on the outside. So someone picked it up, um, wanting to return it to its owner, opened it up to discover whose it was. And it had material in it identifying the owner, Bugnini, as, um, as associated with the Freemasons. Um, and this individual, this priest, took this to someone more important than himself, and it made its way back to Pope Paul VI, who was not pleased by what he saw. So, and, and therefore, he decided to, to send Bugnini away. Um, so that's that's the kind of that's the vague and unsubstantiated story. But but what you've done, Kevin, is actually to find out exactly how far back that story goes. Um, who told it, at least not first, but at least much, much earlier than some vague rumor on the internet, um, and who these individuals were, the priests and the cardinals who took it to the Pope. Um, it, of course, it, it doesn't ultimately prove that Bugnini was a Freemason, um, but it does indicate that Pope Paul VI was indeed presented with evidence of that, at least according to these cardinals. Um, and it's really, in, in the history, recent history of the church, it's very difficult to do better than that, unless we have access to, you know, secret archives. Uh, and it may not even be in there. And I wonder if there's, we'll ever know more clearly than this, what Pope Paul VI was thinking when he demanded that Bugnini become um, an Amazonian for somewhere a long way away. It was very sudden, and that was one of the causes for rumours. It was like, well, this is very sudden, and... At first, they were going to send him to, a, I think it was a central South American country. And he's like, I don't even speak Spanish. You know? And then the, the nuncio position in Iran opened up and they put him over there. And according to Father Murr, that was a, uh, that was a Cardinal Giovanni Benelli and, um, and uh, a Monsignore Marini power club to you know, ship him over to Iran. Um, and again, the reason why Father Murr is taken seriously on this is because he worked with these people. He worked with these guys. He knew them. Uh, and he was like, Kevin, we talked about it over table. I'm like, and actually another exclusive afterwards, somebody read the first interview and they were like, like, Kevin, this is very serious. Like, does he understand, you know, like how, like this is, so I asked Father Murray, I said to him, Father, like, do you like, this, this was a bombshell you dropped. Like, do you, do you see the gravity? Do you know the gravity of this? And he was just like, doesn't everybody know this? He was so beautiful and so simple. And I was like, no, Father, no. Like, we've been out here in the trenches, you know, and we don't know this stuff. Like, like you've held on to this all these years, and it's been a treasure. But you've held it all this time, and everybody else has been fighting and duking it out in the public forum, you know. And you just walk in and kind of wave the wand and go, nope, it's all true. <laughs> you know? uh, it was just such a beautiful, beautiful simplicity there. And, um, you know, I'm... Love that man. He's a good man. It might be useful to, 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 to mention at this point, I mean, Freemasonry in Italy in at that time, um, and maybe more recently, but certainly at that time in the in the in the sixties and seventies, um, it's not really quite the same as what English speakers might think of as Freemasonry. It's not quite the same animal um, in an, in a number of ways. I, I, if in England, we know, you know, the senior members of the royal family have been Freemasons. Um, and, and indeed, 
in the recent past, Anglican bishops. There were several Anglican bishops who were Freemasons. And it was a kind of, and to some extent, no doubt remains, a, a kind of establishment club, a certain kind of establishment person. Um, people who were really quite conservative in certain obvious ways. Um, and very much, you know, on the inside of, of not, not, not plotting to overthrow anything because they were the ones who would have been overthrown if, if anyone overthrowing had been taking place. Um, but actuated by uh, uh, idealism um, of, of, of a kind of vague humanistic kind and characterized above all by philanthropy. Um, I know people argue about how genuine it was, but I, I know that, I mean, Freemasons have given a huge amount of money in England to charity. There are, there's a Freemasonic hospital, you know, from long before the National Health Service was established, um, you know, Freemasonic um, scholarships and um, all sorts of things. So, you know, here they are. Similar here in the United States. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a funny, funny I mean, going, even going back quite a long way, um, there's, a, there's a funny book about Freemasonry written by Conan Doyle, uh, the Valley of Fear, which is a kind of, it's a kind of, it's a Sherlock Holmes story, which is not a Sherlock Holmes story, because it's, it, it, Sherlock Holmes is told the story, he's not a participant, so it's a kind of, it's a way of getting him in without actually involving him in the action, and it's all about corrupt Freemasons in America, and he goes to the trouble of saying, oh, well, of course, the Freemasons, I, you know, the real Freemasons, they're kind of terribly nice and honourable and everything, but um, in one of the books about Freemasonry, which I've read, um, Walton Hanna, Wilton Hanna, um, a famous Freemasonry unmasked. Very, um, um, no, no, I beg your pardon, I'm confusing two books now. Darkness Visible, Darkness Visible. So it's, it's a very good book written in the 50s about Freemasonry in Britain. And he, he talks about this whole thing of the oath they have to take and how they have to do whatever they're told and you know, commit crimes and, and if necessary and stuff. And he says, well, of course, Freemasons don't take this seriously. And he, said, he cites a particular example in America when it, it, the issue arose among Freemasons about whether they would actually have to keep their oath and do something really dastardly. And basically ordinary Freemasons said, you must be joking, you know, and there was kind of massive, you know, huge numbers of resignations and a huge row. And obviously it's not a kind of criminal organization. Um, I mean, there are all sorts of criticism what might make of it. But it, it's, it's, you know, Freemasons in America and Freemasons in Britain are, are not kind of, you know, at least the ordinary ones, they're not, <laughs> they're not kind of monsters, um, monsters of the kind of some, some, some fevered imaginations. But it, it, it is a little bit different in, in the continent because it's become associated particularly with anti-clericalism. Um, insofar as Freemasonry in Britain and America is a, is a kind of Protestant establishment phenomenon. Of course, you'd expect a certain amount of anti-Catholic kind of mm. attitudes. Um, but in, on the continent, it's, it's much more seriously anti-clerical, reviewing the church as the, you know, the enemy. And, and, and as time went on, they actually rejected belief in any kind of deity, which is why they split away from the English-speaking uh, lodges. So there's a kind of split now. Um, it has been since, you know, 100, 200 years. I can't remember exactly when the, when the split occurred. Um, and the other thing, in the Italy, of course, you have this history of organised criminal or, um, activity. All the mafia, of course, it's not just one mafia. It's lots of different families competing with each other. And, 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 and Freemasonry, which is split, is split into different, um, different groups. Um, it fits right in with some very peculiar and dark stuff going on, um, which is not about philanthropy. It's not even necessarily simply about humanistic idealism. Um, some of it is very weird and has been the subject of complicated Italian court cases. And um, in particular, there was something called, um, what was it called? Um, uh, yeah, propaganda doing. P2, that's right, um, which was banned by the Italian authorities. Um, so there's a whole kind of complicated stuff there. And, and it, it, it's, it's, and of course, this is what makes for a kind of the confusion, the kind of the smoke in this debate mm -hmm. is that 
as soon as you say, well, there might be a connection between, you know, some people in the church and Freemasonry, they immediately start thinking about, I don't know, people start thinking about the 18th century, or they start thinking about England, or they start thinking about, you know, the, the you know, British royal family or whatever. I like the way Father Jonathan Robinson put it. He talked about, not, not in this context, but in another context, he talked about the intellectual furniture. You know, how, in other words, you know, it's like the famous scholastic thing, quid, quid, recipitor, you know, something is received in accordance with the mode of the receiver. You know, so that intellectual furniture, you're going to hear the words Freemason and you're going to think about it in accordance with whatever intellectual furniture you have, you know. Um, and I, I think that kind of is a very basic uh, summary of, 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 of what you're trying to, of what you're driving at. Yes, yes, that's right. So I mean, the, the conflict between the church and the Freemasons in, um, in, in the context of, you know, the papal uh, documents, for example, going back quite a long way. Um, and then in the, church, in the context of, of the Italian state's endemic conflict with organized crime is a somewhat distinct thing. And, um, um, and I say that as someone who is far from being a, a, a apologist for British Freemasonry, which I think is both um, deeply, deeply um, problematic from a, a Christian point of view, um, and also a complete joke. And that is my feeling about it. <laughs> that it's, it's a, you know, play acting idiocy, um, people dressing up in stupid clothes and making ridiculous gestures to each other. I think, it, I think it's entirely appropriate to laugh at that because it is laughable. Um, and it, when you get to the historical origins of it, you, you, it's even more laughable. Um, but also they're making pretend oaths um, and insofar as there's a kind of ideological, religious, philosophical kind of stuff going on, which there is, if anyone's interested, most Freemasons, no doubt, aren't interested. Nevertheless, it's there, whether you like it or not. It's, it's actually, it's anti-Christian. Well, it's, it's one of the five or six points that was specifically condemned by uh, Pope Benedict the Fourteenth, and what was it, Providas Romanorum, I think, uh, where he specifically says they have to take these O's, and it's like a supra um, civil agreement you know so if you have a freemason who is a defendant let's say you have a freemasonic judge if the defendant is guilty well the judge is going to treat the freemasonic brother differently than he would you know a non-freemasonic brother in whatever the case may be and pope benedict XIV said you can't have that you have, that's that's the destruction of, of society right there yeah 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 i thought it might Someone tried to recruit me once <laughs> I, um, when I was very young. Um, and this chap said, um, well, I'm a Mason and it's great because, you know, I, I go to, um, this chap had a boat. Uh, I go to the boatyard and they're all Masons. and I know they'll do the best job that they could possibly do for the best possible price. I thought, well, that's quite nice. He said, but, you know, if I, if I ever sat as a magistrate and someone started making signals to me from the dock, I'd tell him to get lost. And I thought, well, okay, and that makes sense. But actually, there's a problem about the boatyard as well, because they are basically cheating the other customers <laughs> and possibly the owner, you know, the shareholders, I mean, depending on what the ownership structure is. But actually, it's not bad. I mean, I don't think, I mean, you might have friendly service from someone who was a personal friend and, you know, a place we're going to mend your car or something. You know, they might want to make sure that your job was done properly. Like, but you know, think of oh, we're gonna we're gonna kind of give you a mates rates job uh, prize, and we're gonna do a better job than we'd otherwise have done. Actually, it's dishonest. I mean, it's minor. It's a minor thing. And okay, fine. They're not, you know, honest Freemasons are not going to kind of break the law in a kind of really serious way. But nevertheless, the whole thing is just ugh. and it's a secret thing, and you kind of don't know who's a member and ah. It's just, well, what, what, yeah. Um, the Pope's condemned Freemasonry, interestingly enough, and importantly, I think, before it rejected God, before continental Freemasonry rejected God, even from the very early days when it was, it was a kind of enlightenment, um, kind of humanistic kind of club, um, it was still bad. 
And it remains insofar as it remains like that. Masonry was founded in 1717, it's a traditional date. The first papal condemnation came from Pope Clement, I want to say the 14th, but don't hold me to that. Uh, it was, he condemned it in 1738 in yeah. his encyclical In Eminenti Apostolatus, I think, In Eminenti for short. Uh, I mean, so that's only 21 or so years after it was founded. So, I mean, that's pretty quick. There must have been something going on there. Yeah, yes, it's interesting. It was, it was very, very quick off the mark. Um, but going back to, to Bugnini, I, I just, just found it a nice quotation about Bugnini by Louis Boyer. Um, Louis, you perhaps know Kevin Boyer's um, memoirs, of which have been translated into English. Um, Louis Boyer was, was, was worked with Bugnini and many others on the liturgical reform. So that's why we're all familiar with Bugnini, why he's a big name for traditional Catholics is because he is the art, often, often described, I think correctly, the architect of the liturgical reform. He really coordinated, brought it all together um, and, um, and drove it. Um, and um, the official person in charge, for at least some of the time, was a chap called Cardinal Lucaro. Um, and um, Boyer notes about Lucaro, he was utterly incapable of resisting the manoeuvres of the mealy-mouthed scoundrel that the Neapolitan Vincentian Bugnini, a man as bereft of culture as he was of basic honesty, soon revealed himself to be. <laughs> Sorry, the convoluted sentence there from Boyer. <laughs> he describes Bugnini as a mealy-mouthed um, man um, as bereft of culture as he was of basic honesty. So Bugnini was not universally well liked. <laughs> um, Boyer was involved in the in the um, liturgical reform, as was a number of other people who you might call a kind of the somewhat old school uh, um, liturgical movement people, people who were genuinely loved liturgy but thought that it should be changed for one reason or another. Often, in my own view, um, in a in a quite wrong-headed way, but nevertheless intellectually honest, um, and actuated by a love of the church, um, and he was appalled by what happened. Um, and he, of course, he he uh, with with a collaborator, um, he, he he famously Boyer wrote the second Eucharistic prayer, um, and there's a story in, in his memoirs about how he he they finished it off in a cafe in the Trastevere <laughs> because they had a deadline. They had to go to, to an office and hand it in. Said, we felt like schoolboys finishing our homework. <laughs> and later on, someone said to him, um, boy, yeah, was a, was a priest, was a priest. So why don't you ever use the second Eucharistic prayer? He said, I can't use it. I wrote it. <laughs> so um, anyway, that's that's enough about about <laughs> about Boyer. But what would you say, Kevin? Is there how, can we can encapsulate the significance of Bugnini, the accusation that he was a Freemason? What does it actually mean? Well, it comes down to if he was a Freemason, then that just screams out very loud the question, was he up to some funny business with the liturgical reforms? Um, that's kind of the crux of it. Was he up to some shenanigans and or funny business? Um, interviewing Father Murr he, for Inside the Vatican, he said, oh yes, yes, that 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 was the goal. You know, that that's what was going on there. Um, you know, so what authority then it, it, if you accept that proposition, then there's a question of what authority was lent to this. Father Murr and I talked about that as well. Um, there's, it's, it's a bunch of issues that get rolled into one. But I will say this, and I will say it publicly. What the Council Fathers envisioned for the, for the mass reform, liturgical reforms, was not what we got through Bernini. I'm going to say it yeah. publicly because it's the honest truth. It's the honest truth. Indeed. I, in fact, it, it, that is obvious. Uh, from anyone. Anyone can read Sacrosanct Concilium, and indeed I recommend them to do it. Uh, anyone listening to this, if you haven't read it, read it. It's nice and short. Um, it, it does contain uh, certain, you know, indications about what reform should be like, and um, what we have is something on a completely different level 
Oh. The, the, the French writer uh, Yves Chiron wrote a really good biography of, of Bunini recently. I believe Angelico Press publishes the English translation. Yeah. Um, and one of the things, there was a quote, I wish I had the book hand, on hand, but there was a quote from Bunini that Chiron puts in there. And Chiron's no, no slouch. He, he is a serious researcher. You know, he, will, he will not put something to print if, if he does not believe it is the truth. And I have a lot of respect for that man for that for that very reason. And he put this quote in from Bonini, so, 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 uh, sourced himself, and Bonini makes this quote about indicates that they have the quote unquote official agenda of his of the concilium, but then there's the hidden agenda. That's what this quote demonstrates. I wish I could remember it off the top of my head, but when I read when I read it, that's what I'm seeing. And I'm yeah. like, this is terrible. Your agenda should be nothing more than that of Jesus Christ. And what the, what your mandate was from the Council Fathers. What are you doing adding in all this extra stuff and why? So this is what, again, going back to what we said earlier, that's what feeds this, you know, was he Freemason? Did that something to do with all of this? That's what feeds right into it. I remember reading that myself, this, this Chiron um, particular passage. And um, it, 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 it's, it's very interesting. I think whether he was a Freemason or not, um, gently to one side for a moment, I, I think that one can still say, um, and I personally prefer to, to think of it this way, that Bugnini um, and people like him were, um, they were sincere in the sense that they convinced themselves that what the church needed to do was to move in a certain direction. Mm. And what he was doing, what Chiron is describing is really saying things like, um, we, we can't be too open um, with our proposals. We put in these things which are a little bit ambiguous or which, which allow us to develop the ideas afterwards mm-hmm. without frightening. Well, first of all, it was people he was worrying about frightening with, a, with, a, with people who were approving the preparatory commissions because Bugnini's uh, Bonny was involved in preparing a, a, the, the first draft before the council even started sitting. So, and that was the first hurdle he had to follow, he had to cross. And now I think you know, anyone can say that. I'm a conservative person, you know, uh, might say, well, we don't want to frighten the horses too soon. I mean, today, and that's exactly what you have to say, isn't it? You don't want to get something past the British conference or, you know, or, or something into, you know, the, 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 the improved ICEL translation of, 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 of the, you might well say, well, you know, let's not, you know, let's moderate our, 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 our proposals because we need to get it through this committee. And I know people say that when they're restoring churches, you know, when they're putting the altar rails back and all that sort of thing. So, I mean, it's not necessarily, doesn't that in itself doesn't show that he was a wicked person. It shows that he was crafty. Um, and also it shows that he was in control. And that's, that's also a very important thing that Bugnini was real mastermind of this process, complicated bureaucratic process of getting things through committees uh, and then being able to do what you want to afterwards because of the way you've worded it, you can refer back to that, all that, all that, all that sort of stuff. Um, but the question is, well, what, what was his ideological objectives? I mean, what theological objectives, the pastoral objectives, whatever they were. Um, and he convinced himself, a lot of people have convinced themselves that you needed to kind of join up with the Protestants and, and, and have something which is acceptable to them. He's very explicit about that. Um, uh, there's a famous article he wrote in Los Observo Romano, where he talks about how he deliberately removed things from the liturgy, which would cause offense to non-Catholics, non-Catholic Christians. Um, and, and this whole thing of the negative themes, um, he takes away all the references to sin, judgment, the world, um also disappears interestingly enough is the concept of grace from from hundreds of prayers this is just removed well why oh he thought it was negative and and oh it's not very nice and people need to be cheered up <laughs> it's, it's bizarre but it's 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 kind of it's there and my my feeling always is is i mean i'm a intellectual i'm a philosopher i want to see where the ideas are coming from where they're going what the arguments are um, and whether someone's a member of some organization which is helping him by pulling strings or, you know, stuffing committees or something, well, that can be very important. But it's not my angle 
my angle is the ideas. Nevertheless, it's also true that if you've got allies, whether they're organized as Freemasons or whether they're just you know, people you were at university with who are able to arrange things in such a way that you get to be the head of the committee and that you know, you've got a majority of people who believe such and such. I know these things are important because that is how institutions are made to evolve <laughs> by influential people. So you, you, it, it's you know, it's not absurd to 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 raise the question um, about about <laughs> about Pugnini and Freemasonry. No, in some ways we have to. It certainly adds the context. Let's not make it the sole focus, you know, because chalking everything up to some evil people working for Freemasonry that's an overly simplistic example. And this is something that Father Murr and I highlighted in the interview, that, which was that. You always have the reality of sin and weakness and frailty in, in human nature, uh, that that's always a role to play in this as well. So like with, with reference to Bunini, I think Father, Father Bunini said it best, you know, a man is bereft of culture, you know, um, it, while that's about his character, that's not necessarily about his, you know, fraternal associations. So we got to look at the total picture historically help us arrive at these issues and that's kind of what we're really talking about in many respects is you know there's a larger picture that we have to understand but in some ways we're still close to the historical events themselves and the documentation is not available for us to have a fuller picture and some of us will will go to god before that documentation becomes available because that's just the way that it works historically Uh, many years have to pass thank you very much kevin That's all we have time for today, but we will be bringing Kevin back at the same time next week to extend our discussion to the other big conspiracy theory. Did communists infiltrate the church? Don't miss it. This podcast was brought to you by the Latin Mass Society. We hope you enjoyed it and would appreciate your rating the podcast on the platform you are using. You'll find some more information and links relating to the talk in the show notes, which you can see on a page dedicated to the IOTA Una podcast series on our website. The Latin Mass Society promotes the celebration of the ancient Latin liturgy of the Catholic Church in England and Wales, organising masses and training events and defending and explaining the liturgical tradition in the context of the Catholic liturgy and thought. If you would like to find out more, do visit our website and consider joining us or giving us a donation you'll find a big red donate button in the top right-hand corner. Thank you.